12. John 18 and verses 1 through 12. So uh, we start a new chapter today. And uh, it, Jesus, it, it's really a new, uh, it's a new chapter, but it's also a new phase in the book of John. We have moved away from Jesus uh, teaching and praying that, that his ministry is basically over now. And as we come into 18, we will move into the final uh, events in the, in the life of Jesus. So what he's been talking about over the past weeks and, and, and months and, and even years that's going to happen is now the hour has come. Uh, he's been talking about it, but now he has to actually uh, walk through it. So everything that he has said and everything he has done has been leading up to this point uh, in, here in chapter 18 and 19 and even into 20. This is the climax of his life. Now, we've said this before, but I want to make sure and say it again that that his death on the cross, it, it, this, this time, that this thing that he's about to go through, this is the whole reason he came into the world, right? So what, what he, this is what he was born to do. Um, I heard somebody say the other day that every one of us, from the moment you're born, you're what? You're dying, right? Some of us, you go to the doctor, it just makes you die slower. You, know, you exercise, you just die slower. But at the end of the day, we're all going to die. They, we've made all kind of advances in, in health care and all that, but the death rate is still what? 100%. It's 100%. Everybody's going to die. But this is what he, he came to do, right? He's 33 years old. Uh, he's a healthy young man, but this is what he came to do. This is no, uh, no accident or anything like that. So any, any talk about, when I hear people talk about Jesus just being a great man or he was a great teacher or he was a prophet, you completely miss the point of his life. He came to die. So that's, he, didn't came, he didn't come to teach, even though that was part of it. He didn't come to heal, even though that was part of it. He came to give his life as a, as a ransom for many. So the Word of God is going to tell us that he was, he's never trapped. Uh, uh, he was never tricked. He was never... Uh, it, it wasn't an accident. He wasn't surprised. He knew all this was going to happen. He knew it before the foundation of the world. Uh, and he went to the cross because he was born for that express purpose. In John 12, 27, you remember he said this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Uh, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is, is, of course, no. Why? Because I was born for this purpose. This is what I came to do. So I think that's important as we move into these last few chapters is understanding this is what he came to do. This is what it's all about. This is, this is not an accident. He's not being tricked. It didn't catch him by surprise. He came to, to die. Um, look at some of these other scriptures, just kind of verifying that. John, um, actually, that's not, the right, that's not the right scripture verse, but Jesus said this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Acts 2.23, after he's dead, um, one of the apostles said this, that Jesus, this Jesus delivered up, According to the what? The definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. In other words, this, this was his plan uh, all along. It wasn't something that just happened. So as we come to chapter 18, we come to the climax. So if you're a Christian, this is your moment. If you're, if you're saved in this room today, you're saved because of what he did. Uh, if you're redeemed, if you've been changed, born again... 
you're redeemed and born again because of what He did. If you're going to be glorified and spend eternity in heaven, you're going to do that because of what, what He did. Okay, so this is, for the Christian, the cross is, is really everything. So in a sense, this is the worst and the best moment in history. Right? It's, it's the best thing that ever happened for us. But it's also one of the worst things that, that ever happened. On the one hand, it, there, the, you, know, you think about in the life of a man or a woman, there could be nothing more debasing or more humiliating than being arrested as a common criminal, being tried. In a, and, and we'll see over the next few weeks how just how bogus the trial was and actually how illegal it was, even according to Jewish law. Uh, we'll see that over the next few weeks. Uh, to be betrayed by one of your friends that you've walked with and talked with for, for years, to be beaten, to be uh, um, uh, just humiliated. Uh, it, it's, it's a terrible thing to go through, and it was evil uh, personified. But we know, as we come to the book of John, we know that even in the midst of all this bad stuff happening, that John is going to somehow get through the glory of Jesus Christ, right? Because he said that was the purpose of his gospel. Remember in John 20, 31, we've quoted this several times. John says, I've written these things. This is why I've written these things, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in His name. So even as we go through this these terrible things that happen to Jesus, as the this betrayal and this arrest, and then over the next couple of weeks as we look at his trial and how illegal it was and all the things that the that the, the Supreme Court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, that they did wrong, um, you'll see that even through all this, he's gonna John is gonna lift up Jesus Christ and show us the glory of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, we begin to study the eighteenth chapter. And what we'll find is that what should be shameful, what should be pathetic, degrading, humiliating, all these things that are happening to Jesus, it actually turns out that they actually show the glory of Jesus uh, in a way that nothing else could. So it really turns out to be a, a magnificent chapter uh, to study. So let's re remember, John has, as we come into this, John has, and you'll watch this as we go through this, John, he's not really concerned about Peter. He's not overly concerned about Judas. He's concerned about one person, and that's Jesus Christ. He wants to show the glory of Jesus Christ. And he's going to do that in four ways. Uh, the first thing he's going to do is he's going to show us Jesus' courage in the face of what he went through. He's also going to show us his power. He's going to show us his love, and he's going to show us his perfect um, obedience. So let's start out by looking at his courage. Now, it's not that uncommon for a man or a woman uh, to be willing to die for a cause. We see that. I was listening to the radio coming in. They had a suicide bombing. Somebody went into a mosque and blew themselves up. They died for a cause, didn't they? Good cause, bad cause. They think it's a good cause. We think it's a terrible cause. But that's not uncommon nowadays to see someone who would die for a cause. Now that takes courage. I don't care if it's right, wrong, <coughs> deluded. It still takes courage to kill yourself. Now, Here's the, or, or, to have, or to give your life. So here's my question. What fortifies a man or a woman? What strengthens them uh, to give their life? So, so think, you know, if you give your life for something or someone, what is it that strengthens you to do that? Their faith in whatever they believe. Okay, their faith. So, so, so what is it about that cause? 
I'm looking for something a little bit different. So let's take a cause, for instance. You, you, you give your life for a cause. What, what is it that, what, what makes you or strengthens you to do that? Your faith is one thing. Okay, okay, you love that more than you love your life, right? Okay, that's very good. Anybody else? What, what, just what, for, just huh? for the reward of what you know. Okay, the reward. Okay, what else would, if you gave, huh? Commitment. Commitment, okay. Those are all good answers. You know, it, it could be, put it this way. Do people that give their life for a cause, do they feel like they're dying for something greater than themselves? They do, right? Yeah. They're committed to that. This cause that I'm dying for, whether it's uh, Islam, whether it's Christianity, whether it's uh, uh, abortion rights, wh- whatever the case may be, you think the cause is greater than me. Everybody with me, right? The other reason, you would also give your life for someone that you love, right? We see that all the time. I remember, um, you, you know, you, you just see that. I read the other day on the news, some, some lady... Uh, had got pregnant and she found out she had cancer and they told her to abort the baby and she said no. She said, I will not do that. In fact, she wouldn't take chemotherapy. She gave birth to that baby and a month later she died. But to her, that baby, to give life to that baby was more important than her to have life. So we see those kind of things. It takes great courage to, uh, to do that. But in Jesus' case, it's a little bit different. Okay? He's giving his life, but here's the thing. He's not dying for something greater than himself, is he? Because there is nothing greater. So he's not seeing this as a cause and saying, well, I'm going to die for Derek because he's greater than me. No, there's nothing greater than him. So he has to walk into this situation to give his life for a cause, right? But that cause is not greater than, than him. So, in fact, he's di- the greater here is dying for the lesser. Everybody agree? Okay. Um, and also, by the way, he's dying. Um, he's dying for his enemies, not for those not for those that love him, is he? Now he loves us, but he's actually dying. The Bible says he's dying when when we were still his enmity. When I forgot enemy, but the scripture actually says we were still had enmity against him. In other words, we were still his enemies, and nevertheless, he still died for us. And so, it's an odd thing when you think about it. He's not dying for something greater, because there's nothing greater than him. And at the same time, he's giving his life for people who hate his guts, don't want anything to do with him. Okay? So, so his courage is, is really great. Beyond that, by the way, he knows that in death, he's, he's lived this life of purity and sinlessness. And he knows that in his death, the sins of the world are going to be put on him. And he literally carries those sins, right? So that's going to be part of it. Uh, he's going to be humiliated, right? By the way, a lot of times when uh, people know they, they give their life for a cause, they know that after it, they'll be celebrated, right? The guys that go into a... Uh, 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 suicide bombers. They you know, they know they're going to be treated like heroes. Their families are going to be taken care of. Jesus is going to be treated like a criminal, right? You know, he's not going to be treated. You know, and he also knows that in his death, that God the Father is going to turn away from him for a period of time, um, and he's never had any kind of loss of fellowship with the Father at all. But there will be a time where the Father has to turn his back on him 
when he's bearing the sins of the world. So he's got all this in front of him, right? So I think when you look at that, to go to a death like that, facing those obstacles, is a courage beyond anything that, that a human being has ever shown. Yet Jesus sets his face um, to go to the cross. So let's turn to verse 1, and let's begin to read. And we'll cover through 12 verses today. So John 18, 1. So it says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook, the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. So what Jesus, he's up on the city. Now remember, the, the Jerusalem is up on a mountain or up on a hill. Remember in the Bible we talked about this. Even if you're coming from the north, right, it'll always say in the Bible they went up to Jerusalem. Even if you're going south, because Jerusalem is up on a hill. So you'll always see this in the Bible. They went up to Jerusalem. Um, so Jerusalem, even today, if you go there, I've never been there. hope to one day, but it's up on a hill. And so what he does is he leaves the garden. And, and when you leave, I'm sorry, he leaves the city. When you leave the city, you'll go down a slope. So again, it's up on a hill. You'll go down a slope. And, in, and at the bottom of the slope is called the Valley of Kidron. It's a little small valley, and running through that valley is a little stream or a little brook called uh, the Brook Kidron. Now, this is something that he has done many, many, many times before in his life. In fact, the town of Bethany, where Lazarus and Martha and Mary live, is just a, is the same pathway. In fact, uh, you'd, you'd go down, you'd cross the brook, you'd go left to the garden, you'd go right to Bethany. So he's crawled, he's, he's walked through this, this journey uh, many, many times uh, before. And so what happens is, again, you leave the city, you go down uh, the slope, you, uh, you cross through this little valley of Kidron, and then you go up um, on the Mount of Olives, which is another little mountain, or it's more like a hill, and, and in that, on that mountain is the Garden of Gethsemane. So here's kind of a map of Jerusalem, just so we can see. So here's, uh, here's all of this is Jerusalem. Here's the temple. Uh, here's the little valley. Uh, here, here's the Mount of Olives. Here's the, uh, the Garden of, of Gethsemane. Um, so again, through this valley runs this little brook called the, the Brook Kidron or the Kidron uh, Brook. And on the other side of that is the Mount of Olives. Now the word Kidron means black. So it's called the Black Valley. And um, during the, they think that one of the reasons that this valley got the name the Black Valley is because what would happen for, you know, remember, the temple has been there for years and years, I mean, you know, hundreds of centuries. And what they would do is during the Passover, they would slaughter about a quarter of a, a million lambs. That's not to mention <laughs> turtle doves and other things, but they would kill about 250,000 Lambs, and what happened is the blood would flow through these little filth to these drains, and it would drain down the hill and down into the valley. And so, of course, dried blood is—it's not red; it's black. And so, what would happen is that the blood would dry on that hillside and turn black. And they think that's one of the reasons uh, that it was given the name, the Kidron Valley, or the or the Black Valley. Now. When the Romans came along, they, they saw that, all that blood, and they said, well, this is just unsanitary. And so what they did is they built an aqueduct and, and some drainage system, and what it would do is they would take all that blood and they would wash it down into the brook. And so the brook would actually carry the blood away. 
So instead of the valley being black and with dried blood, the blood would run out down into the brook filled with the water from the aqueduct and it would, it would wash it away. So the brook Kidron means the black brook, okay? Um, so this, is, uh, um, uh, this was something that the Romans themselves did. Now remember, the night that Jesus is coming down, this is what? This is Passover. So, so um, uh, the, uh, uh, the sacrifices have been going on that week. Now we're told by scholars, I read this, I don't know for sure, I, just, I read this in a book, that there was a full moon that night. Okay, so I want you to think about Jesus and his disciples. They walk out of the city, and all the sacrifices have been going on. They walk down to that brook, and they cross the brook. What would that brook have looked like? It would have been flowing black with blood. So he would have seen that. Um, And he would be reminded, by the way, just visually, that the blood that's flowing there for all those lambs, tomorrow, that's going to be me. You know, he would have been reminded by that that his blood would be poured out as a sacrifice in the morning. Now, as I mentioned, this is a, a common journey for him. It's one he's made many, many times before. It's been his custom throughout the years of his ministry uh, when he was in Jerusalem to go to the Mount of Olives and go to the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, look at verse 2. It says, Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place. How did he know it? Why did he know it? For Jesus, what? often met there with his disciples. So this is something this is not something Jesus did one time. He went there many times. He did it often. So Judas knew that when Jesus is in Jerusalem, when it got time to go somewhere, that's where he's going to go. So when he came that night to the garden, he wasn't just guessing, was he? So he knew that because Jesus had done that many, many times before. Now this was a private garden. Even at that time, the gardens on the Mount of Olives were private gardens owned by rich people. So this wasn't just a public garden that the, the government somehow you know, opened up to the public. It wasn't like that. This was a private garden, and its name, Gethsemane, literally means oil press. So if you ever want to know what Gethsemane means, it means the oil press garden. So this was an active olive garden where they would go and take the olives. They had, a, they had an oil press where they would press out the oil out of the olives and, and package it and sell it and use it or do, or do whatever that they, uh, they did with it. Now, if it's a private garden, then evidently, again, we don't know this for sure, but evidently Jesus would have known an individual who had given them access to that garden. Maybe there was a gate to that garden that needed a key. Uh, so he had access, and him and his disciples, they had done that often. So evidently somebody owned that garden and had given him access to it. So again, this was something that he did often. It was a place where he could rest from the trials, he could rest uh, from the conflicts with the Pharisees and with the people, and it was just some place he could spend time alone and with the, uh, his disciples and, and with the Father. But now, on this night, there's not going to be any rest, okay? So he knows, and you'll see here in just a minute, he knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows everything's going to happen to him. So he goes there that night. And, and as he enters the garden, he knows what's coming. Now, again, I can't help but think that as he crossed that brook and he saw in it the blood of all the lambs that were being slain that week, his mind had to be filled as he goes into that garden. He knows what's coming, right? He's just seen the blood flowing through the, through the brook. And so you've got to think about this. He, you know, he, this is on his mind, right? And, and he's, he's fully God, but he's also fully human. And a fully human, your mind's telling you to what? Dude, you need to run. (laughs) 
you need to get out of here. So we need to remember that as we walk, as he, that he's walking right into a situation where he knows uh, what's going to happen. Let's look at verse 3. It says this, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, again, since Jesus had gone there often when he was in the city, uh, Judas probably knew with some certainty that's where he was going to be. Um, and, and, and yet Jesus does nothing to avoid it, right? Um, he walked willingly right into the, uh, into the ambush. Now, evidently, they felt that they were going to have to search for Jesus. They, they might have thought, well, he's going to be hiding somewhere. Maybe he's climbed up a tree or he's in one of the caves. Or, or... So they come uh, with all these torches, right? And maybe John points that out. They came with lanterns and torches. So they're, they're probably coming thinking, all right, we're going to have to look for, uh, for them. At the same time, they also were prepared for a fight. Right? They didn't come empty-handed. They came with what? Sure. They came with weapons. And so that's why John points that out. Now think of how ironic this is. Okay? They come with torches looking for the light of the world. They come with weapons to find the Prince of Peace. Now just think about how ironic that is. They come with torches looking for the light of the world and they come with weapons to find the Prince of Peace. It's, it's just, you, you understand, they had no clue who he was. No clue. It's just a cruel misinterpretation of who Jesus was. And of course, Judas is, is right there with him. Now we last encountered Judas in chapter 13, right? Remember they're in the upper room, they're having the Last Supper. He dips his bread into the into the uh, into the uh, word whatever they dipped it in, um, and it said this in John thirteen twenty seven. When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him, and Jesus told him, "Hurry, and do what you're going to do." So remember that night, Judas left the room. Jesus knew what he was going to do, right? So it, it would have made sense for Je- for Jesus to say, "Guys, look, we can't go to the garden tonight because Judas is going." No, of course he knew what was going to happen. He went to the garden. In fact, you'll see in a minute, one of the reasons he went to the garden was to make it easy for him. He he knew that was going to happen. Now, here's a question I want to ask real quick. Because I I saw this in one of the studies, and I want to see what you think about it. Was Was Judas possessed by Satan? What do you think? I don't, by the way, I don't know the answer to this, so your answer can't be right or wrong. I just, I, I, you know, it says Satan, what? Entered into him, but was he possessed? Was he devil-possessed or demon-possessed? I, I don't think he was possessed because he was already greedy and had been stealing from the money, and he was the money keeper, and he was all about himself anyway. So okay. I think he kind of tended that direction. Okay. It was easy to be right. controlled by Satan. Somebody else? Yes or no? I was just going to say what she said. He was addicted to uh, the worldly things. Okay. All right. If he was possessed, it's because it's building up off of what they already said. But I don't know. It sounds like being possessed sounds like an easy excuse. Oh, I was possessed. You couldn't help yeah. yourself. Anybody else? Yes? No? You know, the, 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 I, I don't know the answer. I will tell you this. In the Bible... If you ever find where it says somebody was possessed, what behavior do you see? Very uncontrolled. Huh? Seizure-like. Completely out of control. They're 
they're they're throwing themselves in the fire. They're foaming at the mouth. They're 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 cutting themselves. Right? You just crazy stuff. And and but Judas is completely in control, isn't he? So I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it says Satan entered into him, but again, this could be a language thing, right? Sometimes we we're translating from Aramaic and Greek into English. Um, you know, sometimes the the nuances. Uh, you know, I, I tend to think he wasn't because I don't think it matches up with what the Bible shows as real demon possession. I think. But didn't he also want to? Uh, he thought that Jesus was going to come and rule. Uh, you know, well, the one what we don't know is what's in Judas's mind, right? You, if you if you ever watch TV shows about Judas, you'll hear him say, "Well, he he wanted to bring everything to a conclusion so that Jesus would become." We, we had that, by the way, that's all made up. No, <laughs> nobody knows what was in Judas's mind. Um, Jesus, Jesus said, "Her, what you gonna do? Go do it." What his reasoning was, we don't know. Now we do know he commits suicide after he does it. So evidently there was shame and regret. So maybe he meant something. We don't know. We just don't know what was in his uh, what was in his mind. Now, so let's move past that. So here's the question. We said earlier, a normal human being, you know what Judas is going to do. Would you go to the normal place you normally go? No, you wouldn't. So the question would be, why did Jesus go to the garden that night? He, he knew Jesus had gone to betray him. Why wouldn't he have gone somewhere else? Why did he go to that garden? Because he knew that that was uh, God's plan. That was God's plan. I mean, again, it goes back to that. He, he's not being, Jesus is not dumb. He's not ignorant. He's not... Uh, any of those things. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows what the plan is. Um, he went there because he knew Judas would be there. He knew the soldiers would be there, and he was in complete control because, again, the hour had come, right? This was the, the time. It wasn't a surprise. He's got this mapped out from before the world began. He knew Judas and the soldiers would come to the garden on that night, and he knew that before those men uh, were even born. In fact, I really think he wanted to make it easy for him. If you go back and you read the Gospels, you'll see things like this in the Gospels where they wanted to arrest him several times, by the way, did they not? But they, were, they didn't arrest him. Why? They were afraid of the crowds because the crowds considered Jesus, Jesus to be a prophet. So there were times they wanted to arrest him, but they didn't do it because there was crowds around. Well, guess what? On this night, there's no crowds. It's just Jesus and, and his 11 disciples. There's no crowds around. So Jesus going to the garden eliminated the problem of fear for the Jewish authorities and the Roman soldiers. He took that away because there are no crowds. It's a private place. It's at night. Um, in fact, uh, I think he took the 11 along just so they would see that it was voluntary. Uh, he wanted them to see that he was in control. And we'll see more of that here in just a minute. So a coward would have gone anywhere but the garden. Now, there were plenty of times in the past where he purposely evaded them, right? There was a time in his hometown of Nazareth. They took him, right? Remember, he's in the temple, and he says, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears, and they hollered blasphemy, and they took him. They're going to throw him off a hill, and he just what? He just, <laughs> where did he go? I mean, you see that over and over again, but that wasn't because he was afraid. It was because the time, was, it, the time wasn't right. He still had things that he had to do. Uh, but on this night, it's the time. 
His hour of death has come. And so he walks courageously into it completely in control. Now look at verses 4 through 5. Watch what happens. So they come to the garden. They've got weapons. They've got torches. And it says this. John says this. Then Jesus, and look at what's in the blue, knowing all that would happen to him. John wants us to make sure that we know that this is not catching him by surprise. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He, he knows, by the way, he doesn't just know they're coming. He knows that in two hours they're going to beat him. In three hours or four hours they're going to stick a crown of thorns on his head. In a few hours they're going to nail him up. He knows exactly what's coming. And it says, but Jesus, knowing all that was, would happen to him, did what? He walked forward. He walked right up to him. He's not hiding behind a tree. He's not climb. He's not climbing behind a rock. He walks right up to him and he asked them, "Who do you seek?" And they answered him, "Jesus of Nazareth." And Jesus said to them, "I am He." And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now, other gospels tell us that Judas actually walks up and kisses Jesus. You know, we've got the Judas kiss. Ever since then. You know, that's, been, uh, that's, that's a terminology we use some, sometime when somebody betrays us. We call that the Judas kiss. Uh, but by the way, for example, Luke twenty two forty eight, Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? But remember, John doesn't tell us that because John could care less about Judas, right? This is about Jesus. So he, Judas, he tells us Judas is there, but he doesn't really tell us what Judas says. He's not really concerned with any of that. He's concerned about glorifying Jesus, right? See, when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one has their own kind of purposes. That they're, you know, that's why each one will tell you different things. Again, John is all about what? Glorifying Jesus. So people like Peter, people like uh, uh, the other disciples, even the Roman soldiers, they're minor players. He wants us to see Jesus. Um, in fact, watch out John notice, make sure that we notice who in initiated the encounter, right? Read it again. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, did what? He came forward. In other words, he initiated it. He didn't wait for them to come to him. He went to them and said, who are you looking for? And they said, of course, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And oh yeah, look in your Bible. You'll notice that the word he should be in italics more than likely. If you've got King James or, or, or the New King James, you'll notice that the he is in italics. What he literally said in the Greek or the Aramaic is, he, when they, he said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. I love it in the, uh, the Aramaic Bible in plain English, which is where they, they basically just translate the Aramaic directly into English. It says, they were saying that he said, who are you looking for? And they were saying to him, Yeshua the Nazarene. And Yeshua said to them, I am the living God. Not just I'm Jesus, but I am the living God. Um, and so I, just, I love that. So let's look at his power and what happens next. Look at verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am, or I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, question, why is this even there? In fact, why would Jesus do it? He, he knows he's going to give himself to them, doesn't he? 
He knows he's going he's to surrender to them. He's going to let them take him. He, he's come to die. Why would he do that? Why would he say, when I am he and they all fall down? Why, why is that there? Okay, demonstration of his power. Show the very fact that he, those are both exactly correct. You see, in the other Gospels, you have Jesus on his knees praying in anguish, right? But in John's, not in John's Gospel. You don't find that in John's Gospel. Uh, in his Gospel, Jesus is on his feet and everybody else is what? On the ground. Okay? Again, John is interested. He's not interested in showing you Jesus praying. He's interested in showing you Jesus, the Son of God, completely in control. That's what he wants us to see. He wants us to see his power. And by the way, the disciples saw it that night, didn't they? As they're standing there and he says, I am he, and they all fall down, they're like, whoa, <laughs> man. He, he could, you know, in your mind, you're realizing, man, he could get out of this with one word. <clears throat> he could get out of this with one breath if he wanted to. Um, and, 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 and by the way, he did it not only for them, he did it for who else? He did it for us so that we can read about it 2,000 years later and know he did that voluntarily. He could have got out of it, but he, but he didn't. You see, he had the power to not go to the cross. He could have called 10,000 angels, could he not? to come and rescue him. He could have killed them all with the breath of his mouth. That's what he's showing us there. I, I could speak a word and, and y'all are dead. Um, but he didn't. The God of all power used none of it on that night. Um, he's, he's, they're not taking his life. He's what? He's giving it. He's laying it down. And he wants us to see that. He wants the disciples to see that as well. Again, this is another sign by John to show us that Jesus is no victim, uh, that he is the majestic victor, full of power and with everything in his control. So he revealed his power and he did it for the disciples and he did it for us. Now, the third thing that John wants us to see, and that is his love. Let's look at verses 7 through 9. So he asked them again. So he says, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus. He said, I'm he. They all fall down. They get back up and he asked them again. Who do you seek? Who are you looking for? And they said once again, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I'm the one. I am he. If you're looking for me, let these men go. Okay? This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken earlier. Of those whom you gave me, I lost not one. So here we are. Over the last few weeks, if you've been with us from chapter 13, chapter 14, 15, and 16, you'll notice that Jesus is constantly protecting his disciples, is he not? He's, 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 he's just he's concerned about them. He's filling them with, this is what's going to happen. This is what I need you to do. And here at last, when, he, when the moment has come, when he should be thinking probably about himself, who's he still thinking about? He's still thinking about his, his disciples. Again, Jesus Christ is the kind of shepherd that gets out in front to meet the wolves before they get to the flock. He's not a hireling that runs from the danger, uh, the true shepherd protects them from the wolves. I think he was concerned about his disciples also because he knew that they had a mission after he was gone. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so here he is. He's the victor. He's the king giving commands. And he is a shepherd displaying his protected love. Now, here in this, this group that night is this guy called Peter, right? <laughs> Now, what do we know about Peter? Tell me so far from what we know about him. What kind of, what's his personality? 
Right. He's quick-tempered. What else? He speaks his mind. He speaks his mind, doesn't he? What else? He's impetuous. He's what? He loves Jesus. Oh, man, he loves Jesus with all his heart. And he loved what he stood for. Yeah, there's no doubt. He loved, he loved. We're going to talk more about Peter over the next couple of weeks because he comes into play. But um, here's Peter. Now, remember, he's impetuous. He's quick-tempered. By the way, is he brave? Oh, yeah, man, he's brave. There's nobody braver than Peter. Dude, when you'll step out of, when you'll tell Jesus, call me to come to you, and you'll step out in, a, in, a, in, a, in an ocean that's boiling, you've you got some courage, right? He's got faith. I mean, there's nobody like Peter. Um, so here's Peter. He's in this crowd, and he's watching this, and he's just seen Jesus say, I am he, and what happened? They fall. Now, what do you think Peter's thinking? Come on. <laughs> Let's go. It's on now. I mean, he is like, he's ready, right? I mean, you know Peter. And Peter's got him a little sword. I don't know why he's got this sword. Jesus has been preaching peace, and, and Peter's always got this little, it's, a, it's, a, his, it's not a sword, it's, a, it's, a, it's bigger than a knife. It's probably about this long. You get, they just, I, some of the studies describe But Peter's got it hid somewhere, right? And I'm sure at that point he's thinking, listen, we, this, we're in no way they're taking us, right? Um, so he did what many of us do. He just completely forgot about everything Jesus had said over the last few weeks about how this is all going to happen and it's all for a purpose. And he just what? He just stepped right out in front, didn't he? How many of us are just like that sometimes, you know? Um, he got out from behind Jesus. He gets out from behind his protection and he takes matters into his own hands. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Now, a couple things. That's really all that John tells us. More than likely, Peter was trying to cut his head off. <laughs> and the guy just moved enough to get just his, just his ear. Uh, but Luke add more, adds more. Now, John doesn't tell us this. And I'm surprised John didn't tell us this. But Luke does. Luke says this. One of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. John says that's Peter. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Okay? He touched his ear and he, and he healed him. Now, here's Peter, impetuous as always. It's not enough that Christ has already protected him. He's, he's just gone through a whole dialogue with the soldiers to make sure that the, the disciples are left alone. Peter draws a knife and wants to fight. He probably feels invincible in the presence of Jesus. So he takes a swing, cuts off the guy's ear. Now, Jesus, in another beautiful demonstration of love, reaches over and heals one of the men who's going to kill him. This man is going to be one of the men that, that are involved in his killing. So right in front of everyone, he gives him a new ear. Listen, he is, in all of his life, he's never hurt anyone. And he's not going to start now. Right. By the way, he's not interested in injuring men and fighting against men. In fact, he came to die for Malchus, did he not? That's the thing. When you think about that night, it, he heals his ear. He came to die for that guy, not to hurt him. And it's just a beautiful thing that he would, that he would do that. Now, just, just think about this for a moment. You're in that garden that night. You're one of the soldiers. You're one of the servants. You're, you're, you're Judas. You're the eleven, whoever you may be. Now, you've already seen two miracles, two pretty astounding miracles, right? Not only have they fallen over together at the sound of a man's word, 
But now you've literally seen Jesus reach up and touch a man's ear and grow him a new ear and heal it. Right? Now, are those, if you were there that night and you saw that, if you were one of the soldiers, what would you think? What should you think? Whatever he, he did, we, he was, whatever he said he was. That's probably who he was. That's who he was. <laughs> right? Sure. You, I mean, think about this. All this, the whole world, everything you know has come down to this one night, this one experience, and you're standing in front of a man, and these are going to be the last two things he does as far as, as well, of course, till the resurrection. These are the last two miracles he does. And he speaks. They all fall down. And later you, you see him reach over and heal a man's ear. If I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, man, that guy, that must be who he, whoever he says he is, he is, right? And you'd think that they would fall on their knees and worship him. But do they? No, they don't. It makes no difference to them whatsoever, right? Judas makes no difference to him, no difference to the soldiers. In fact, in verse 12, it says they arrested him and bound him and took him away. Two miracles. Staring them in the face, and it makes no difference to them whatsoever. You see, I ask why they don't. And, and again, I said this last week, and I want to go back to this. They don't because they can't. It's like I mentioned last week. It's not because they're stubborn and hard-headed. By the way, they are stubborn and hard-headed. Are they not? Just like we were. That's part of it. But see, the fact is they're blind. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, they're there on that night, and, and the glory of Jesus Christ is displayed right in front of them. His miracle-working power, His love, it's right there, and they cannot see it. Why? Because they're blind. They can't see it. That's what, that's what Paul tells us. They're blinded. Now, here's the question. Why do we see? Because our, our eyes have been opened. That's so what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. He's shown the light in our hearts so we can see. See, the fact is, He has to unblind us. He has to lift the veil off of our eyes. He has to make the dead alive. He does that, not we ourselves. And they just, and you, it's a perfect example of that, that on that night they could not see it even though it was standing right there in front of them. Finally, let's look at his obedience, 1811. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now what is this cup Jesus is for, referring to? Okay, it's his obligation, it's his destiny, it's... Is that what you think it is? It's God's plan. It's God's plan. Okay. By the way, all of those are true. I, I think, uh, the, you know, uh, sometimes when we walk through something that God has for us to walk through, we might say, this is the cup he's given me to drink. It's, my, it's his plan for me. It's my destiny. It's my whatever. But there's also something else that scholars refer to here. And, and Pastor Henry, Henry mentioned this last week in his sermon that we always interpret Scripture with Scripture. Do we not? We don't take one scripture and say, oh, this is what it means. We look at it. And, and then, by the way, when you look at scriptures to interpret the use of cup in Jewish language, cup consistently refers to God's judgment and God's wrath. Okay? 
Uh, look at Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Psalm 75, 8. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. It is well mixed and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Revelation 14, 10. He, will also, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of, of the Lamb. See what Jesus is saying is not only is he going to drink the plan of God, the suffering that God has for him, he's going to drink the wrath of God. Okay, now that is an amazing thing. He's going to drink the wrath of God. By the way, he's drinking it, the cup meant for you and you and me. He's going to drink it for us on that night. Whose wrath was it? It's God's wrath against your sin and my sin. Romans 2, 5 through 8. Paul said this, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. How critical was this? <clears throat> By the way, if he had not gone through with it, had he been disobedient on that night, as was Adam, you and I never could have known salvation. <clears throat> Romans 5.19 says, for by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. By the obedience of one, many shall be made righteous. Because he drank our cup on that night, we can be made righteous. He could have walked away. He could have said, no, I can't do it, won't do it. And salvation would not have been possible. The soldiers and the Pharisees who came to arrest Jesus that night were witnesses to the majesty of Jesus Christ. They saw his courage, his love, his power, his obedience. And 2,000 years later... As we sit here today, we have witnessed the same things as we study this passage of Scripture. But notice what verse 12 says. Then the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him. And they took him away to die. You see, they witnessed it all, but they couldn't comprehend it. They couldn't see it. The question, though, is what about us? You know, that's what this all... It's interesting to sit here and read it and think about them, but the Bible should always come back to us. The question is, we've seen it all, do we see it, right? Um, the fact is that if we don't believe in and obey the Son of God, then we're right there with those soldiers on that night. We're no different from them. We have seen and not comprehended, and the wrath of God remains on us. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on, on him. Because of what he did on that night, if we put our faith and trust in Him, which is evident by our obedience to Him and His Word, then we are free from God's wrath. We are free from His judgment. Romans 5, 9 says it this way, Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from uh, the wrath of God. Okay? Any questions or comments? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank You uh, as we come into John 18.